The reason it appeals to young people is because when we're young, we're free to be idealistic. We're still looking for ideals. We're looking for some something heroic to live our life by and to strive towards. And then as we age, we become more cynical, or most people become more cynical. And they abandon that beautiful thing that youth has, which is the striving for the ideal, the striving for values, the striving for uh, for heroism. And yeah, uh, cynical old guys don't like Ayn Rand, right? You know, they've given up on it. So they've given up on life in many respects, on, on the beauty of life. And, and her philosophy is not for people who've given up on the beauty of life. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is uh, the, well, actually, I'll ask him. I don't know what his deal is. Like, Ricky, i got to ask you, are, are you are you a selfish man? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. I, 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 I guess I'm part of that, that Me Too generation. I don't me know. Too? I don't know. Is it Me Too? Is that what they say? The, no, that's very different. Yeah, the the yeah. me generation. Oh, the is me the generation. Of, the oh. me too generation is you've um, sexually harassed women. Yeah, or or been sexually harassed by Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, or whatever. Either way, I so you are selfish clearly because you've talked about yourself for thirty seconds. Anyway, <laughs> okay. So, okay. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> here to talk to us about your selfishness is uh, a, a global. Uh, incredible mind Yaron Brook the head of the Ayn Rand Institute and he's gonna uh we're gonna sort out um you know your selfishness and you know maybe some of mine too we'll, we'll see if we get around to it Yaron Brook is chairman of the board at the Ayn Rand Institute he's the host of the Yaron Brook show and is a popular guest speaker on both radio and television he's been a columnist at Forbes.com and penned articles for the Wall Street Journal USA Today and has co-authored the books Free Market Revolution How Ayn Rand Ideas Can End Big Government Equal is Unfair America's Misguided Fight Against Income Inequality and In Pursuit of Wealth the moral case for finance. He is, is a successful entrepreneur and an unapologetic objectivist, and he's here to talk about Ayn Rand, her philosophy, and one of her greatest books, The Fountainhead. Yaron, welcome to The New Flesh. Well, thanks for having me on. Yaron, uh, I have to get this out of the way right now. Uh, I've been in the Ayn Rand closet for too long now, and <laughs> I'd like to come out on air to you right now I love the Fountainhead, and I don't care who knows it. I said it. That's great. Uh, you know, it, it, the fact is that a lot of people love the Fountainhead, uh, and, and uh, many of them are still closeted, many of them not so much. But <laughs> the Fountainhead seems to cross over. Uh, so people, all kinds of political uh, persuasions and, and uh, philosophical views, the Fountainhead seems to be uh, loved uh, by people by many more than than that Atlas Shrugged and by many more people who agree with Ayn Rand's philosophy. Uh, did you, and so do you find that people different sorts of people are attracted to Ayn Rand for different reasons? Sure. Um <laughs> yes, I mean uh, the Fountainhead I think appeals to a variety of different people who tend to be independent. Um a lot of artists a lot of creative people are attracted to the Fountainhead. It's about an architect after all, an architect who who's is very independent and who has artistic integrity. And I think that kind of general theme appeals to people who might not agree with Ayn Rand's philosophy, uh, politics necessarily, but, but agree with this idea of artistic integrity. Um, I think Atlas Shrugged often appears, appeals more to people who are 
more politically inclined, more interested in the world, if you will, and what's going on in the world, uh, more philosophically inclined, maybe. And and uh, but even then, you get some people who read the Atlas Shrugged and say, "Great book, loved it," and then they go on in life as if nothing happened. And then you get people like me who read Atlas Shrugged and it blows my mind. And uh, you know, forty years later, is it forty years? It's more than forty years later. Um, I still, you know, I'm still blown away by it, right? And, and it's still impacting my entire life, and it changed everything about me. So you, it's, it's her books affect people in very different ways, and uh, people respond in very different ways to her work. And then, of course, there are people who don't like it. Well, perhaps you could uh, maybe tell us how you first came across Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand's work, and uh, what impact it, it it's had on you. Obviously, obviously a big impact. It, yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. I was 16. Uh, I was living in Israel. I grew up in Israel. And uh, I was a I was a socialist uh, like everybody else. I didn't know anything else existed, really. Everybody was a socialist in Israel back then. And a very much a kind of a Jewish nationalist and very much a... Um, not religious, but very much kind of a, a collectivist, tribalist, nationalist. Um, and I, uh, a friend of mine was, we were arguing about something and he was spouting these pro-capitalist ideas. And I said, basically, where are you getting this nonsense from? And he said, you got to read this book. And he handed me a copy of Alice Shrugged. And I, I read Alice Shrugged. It took me a long time because I, I didn't want to agree with it. Um, I argued with Ayn Rand. I yelled at her. I threw the book on the on the on the wall um, a number of times. But by the end of the book, uh, I was convinced she was right and I was wrong. And it basically turned my world upside down because everything I thought I believed, or not everything, but most things I thought I believed, I now thought were wrong and and had to restructure my belief system. Uh, and that that took a while, and it took a while kind of to integrate because you can you can do it up here, but it's hard to get the emotions to, to back it all up. And it took a while to, to get a full integrated new philosophical view of the world. So I've spent basically since I was 16, I've spent my life kind of figuring all that out, uh, learning her philosophy, integrating the philosophy. There's always new stuff to learn. Uh, the, the beauty of philosophy, because it applies to almost everything in life, is there's always something, new application, new way to think about the world. Uh, a new way to apply it. So it's a constant learning process. Um, and uh, it really has, and then it became a profession, right? I, I became the CEO of the Ayn Rand Institute at some point. So uh, it's it's shaped everything uh, in terms of my life. On my first date with my wife, this is how stupid I was. I mean, it worked, but this is how, I don't recommend this to anybody. Um, my first date, I gave my wife the Fountainhead to read, right? Uh, luckily, the next day she came back and said, I'm loving it, you know, and, 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 and she left. I did the same thing to my wife. Yeah. It, oh, <laughs> it spoke twice. <laughs> um, so, uh, it, you know, so it's, it's everything in my life has been, if you will, shaped by these ideas. So uh, who is Ayn Rand and why are we still talking about her? Well, I mean, she was a philosopher and a novelist. She would prefer it the other way around. She considered herself a novelist first and a philosopher second. Uh, she she's famous for writing primarily The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, but she also wrote two other works of uh, fiction, uh, Anthem, which is a small book you can get through in a couple of hours, 
And We the Living, which is probably the most autobiographical of all of her books, which is about, in a sense, life in the Soviet Union, what life was like in the Soviet Union uh, for a young woman. Uh, she, she was born in Russia, witnessed the Russian Revolution, um, grew up as a teenager under communism, uh, went to university under communism, managed to escape when there was a little window of opportunity uh, where she could get out and, and came to the United States basically with nothing in her early 20s and, um, and you know, headed out to Hollywood because she wanted to write for the movies. She wanted to be a writer. She always wanted to be a writer. So she headed out to Hollywood and, and uh, uh, she had a, a cousin in the, in the uh, cinema business. So he wrote a, some kind of letter of introduction. She went to Cecil B. DeMille Studios nobody knows who Cecil B. DeMille is, but was, but he was like, like Steven Spielberg, right, of 20 years ago. That was Cecil B. DeMille. And uh, she goes to the studios and hands in a letter of introduction. And they say, you know, we'll call you, don't call us kind of stuff. And she walks out the door and outside is, is this big uh, convertible. And inside the convertible is Cecil B. DeMille and this little Russian girl. And she's, she's staring at him. And he, you know, he's like, what are you staring at? And, and she says, you know, I've just come from Russia. And she gives him the spiel. And I want to be in the movie industry. I want to be in the movie business. She said, okay, get in, get in the car. She gets in and he takes it to uh, the back lot where they're filming The King of Kings, the story of Jesus Christ of all stories, right? And uh, he gives her a pass and said, well, if you want to be in the movie business, you better see how movies are made. And he gives her a pass and she becomes an extra in the movie. And she meets her future husband on the movie set and that's her ticket in. She w works in the wardrobe. She works all kinds of odds and ends jobs. And in the meantime, learns English, learns to write, 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 works unbelievable hours and uh, publishes Anthem and We the Living. They're not particularly successful. Anthem is only published in the UK. Uh, but then The Fountainhead, she writes The Fountainhead. It's published in 1945. Uh, Twelve publishers turn it down. And then finally a publisher accepts it, publishes it, doesn't publish a lot, doesn't print a lot of copies because they don't they don't know how well it's going to do, turns into a national bestseller by word of mouth with no marketing, really. Um, then 12 years later, she publishes Alice Shrug. By that point, it, you know, they, they're competing to get it, right? The publishers are competing. Who's going to get it? Because And again, turns into a bestseller. She's one of the only authors in history who sells more now, now that she's passed away than she did when she was alive. Um, without her books being part of a curriculum, right? So that would, they are authors who sell more now, but only because they're part of high school curriculum and all the high schools buy them. Nobody, she's not part like of anything. Like the 1619 Project. Like something like, well, Fantastic yeah. literature, which that's what, that's what we're talking about. That's right. And of course, 1619 Project, they wouldn't take Ayn Rand because she was, I guess, white. So they wouldn't be included in the- in the. That's the right. Mm. Plus she was pro-American and that certainly wouldn't be included. That's in a no-no. no <laughs> Uh, so she she publishes that in fifty seven uh, Atlas, and then the rest of her life she died in nineteen eighty two. The rest of her life she devotes to writing philosophy. Um, the way she explained it was, her dream, her, her purpose in writing fiction was to portray what she called the ideal man. What is ideal about a human being? How do you? What does an ideal human being look like? And if you think about um, how it worked in the Fountainhead that's her getting close to her view of an ideal man. And, um, but she said, so she went to research what do people think an ideal man is and what do philosophers have to say about an ideal man. And what she found was what, 
what she found was horrific. You, you know, an ideal man is a man on a cross suffering and dying for somebody else's sins, right? An ideal man is Mother Teresa sacrificing her life. And that that's the ideal. There is no Ayn Rand-like heroic ideal man. The closest she found was Nietzsche, but she didn't like Nietzsche because he was it was all about emotion and it was all about will and 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 you know borderline violence. So she rejects Nietzsche. She said, "You know, I have to develop my own philosophy because there's nothing out there that that has this view." So she developed her own philosophy in order to be able to portray the ideal man. And then once she finished Atlas Shrugged, she devoted herself to you know, uh, developing that philosophy and writing about it. And the reason people are still talking about her is, A, the books are incredibly powerful. Young people are still enjoying them today, um, you know, 75 years after after they were published. And uh, her philosophy is, is an incredibly powerful philosophy and one that appeals to, obviously, a, a small minority, but appeals to people uh, and is viewed by many people who don't agree with her as a, the real enemy. So you find people on the left and people on the right attacking her out of nowhere. Why attack a dead philosopher? Because they realize that in a sense, their ideas are threatened by hers. Well, i got two questions on that that are related. When I mention Ayn Rand or the Fountainhead for that matter to people, if they've heard of it at, at all, which is you know always surprising if they have, but when they have... The reactions are cool at best and sneering at worst. And what? why, I mean, you've already sort of touched on it, but what is this pervasive negative attitude about her and her work? Well, a lot of the sneering and a lot of the, the negativity and the coolness comes from people who've never read it, right? They've heard about it, they but they haven't read it. And uh, it comes from the kind of cultural perception of Ayn Rand as this um, woman who advocated for selfishness as... Uh, as the common, as, as as all of us commonly understand it, as the world commonly understands it, uh, she advocated for people just doing whatever they, whatever they wanted and um, uh, didn't care about other people. And she was good. She she was pro the rich and hated the poor. Right? She even gets a question at some point. Uh, I think her last lecture she gave in New Orleans in um, in 1981, in December 1981. And somebody asked that question: Why do you hate the poor? Something like that. And her initial response was. You should be happy you weren't close close to me when you asked this question, right? I would have I would have punched you in. You know how dare you ask a question like that, right? Um, so, but that's a perception. The perception is somehow she hates the poor. She she's so she. It, it, the perception is without even people being able to necessarily put it into words is she's just a horrible human being who had a horrible philosophy that justifies the worst actions possible to human beings. Um, and they can't justify it. They can't find the quotes. They can't find the passages because they're not there, right? Um, she did write a, a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. But if you read the book, her perspective on what selfishness is is dramatically different than what this common view is of, of uh, you know, being a horrible person and backstabbing other people and not caring and anything like that. Um, you know, Aristotle was was for egoism. So she has a philosophical view of what egoism should be and what it's like, which is very different. But but yeah, and then some people read it. And, and here's another, there's another attitude that you get. I, I get this from a lot of uh, very well-educated people who, who and, the, and their attitude is, I, Paul Krugman writes about this uh, frequently. I, I think you know who Paul Krugman is in Australia, uh, but it, it, famous economist, Nobel Prize winner. And he, and he says, yeah, 
you know, when you're 14, Alice shrugged is great, but we all outgrow it, right? And my response to that is the reason it appeals to young people is because when we're young, we're free to be idealistic. We're still looking for ideals. We're looking for some something heroic to live our life by and to strive towards. And then as we age, we become more cynical, or most people become more cynical, and they abandon that beautiful thing that youth has, which is the striving for the ideal, the striving for values, the striving for uh, for heroism. And yeah, uh, cynical old guys don't like Ayn Rand, right? You know, they've given up on it. So they've given up on life in many respects, on, on the beauty of life. And, and her philosophy is not for people who've given up on the beauty of life. Yeah, I, I, that really resonates. And, and, but if we bring it up to date as well, how is it that Ayn Rand has an immigrant from, you know, a, a, a country going through a revolution akin to a war zone at that time, uh, a female author, how is it that she is not unanimously celebrated by the intersectional left? Does she not tick enough boxes? What, what's, what's going on here? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but start with the fact that, um, I mean, do they really think communism is a bad thing? Right? So she fled from communism, but the left still thinks communism is a fantastic idea, badly executed. And, and maybe if they're honest, the more honest left will say it's impossible. We, we can't, can't achieve it, but it's still a beautiful idea. It's still, you know, it, and Marx is still revered, even though they might not be Marxists and they might not strive for his utopia and the, you know, proletarian and all that. But there's still, Marx is still a heroic figure for them. And so the fact that she escaped the Soviet Union is not a plus, right? It's, it's a negative. Um, then there's the fact that she, I mean, philosophically, is the only philosopher to fundamentally reject the basic premise of intersectionality. Nobody else does, I don't think. I don't think Jordan Peterson does. I, I don't think the, I don't think... Uh, the Christian right does. I don't think anybody does because the fundamental premise of intersectionality is this idea that suffering and need are a moral claim against everybody else. And the more you suffer, the more you need, the more you have a moral claim. Now, Christianity thinks that's true, right? You need a, you need a, the meek shall inherit the earth and you need a sacrifice to the poor. And this is why Mother Teresa is a saint. Jordan Peterson believes that, that that is virtue and that is noble to help the poor, the poor, the standard. Suffering is the standard. Ayn Rand rejects that completely. And she said, no, virtue is not about helping the poor. Virtue is about what you do with your own life. Virtue is about how do you make your life the best life that it can be. And, and hey, by the way, if you want to help the poor, fine. But that's not what defines virtue. And you as a human being are not good for being suffering, are not good for being... Um, persecuted against. That doesn't make you good. That in and of itself doesn't make it a virtue. So the whole basis of intersectionality is undermined because the whole idea of this pyramid of need and suffering and, and, and uh, uh, she rejects that as a basis for anything. Uh, you know, if there's, if there's uh, discrimination going on, fight against discrimination. Uh, she's, you know, she's obviously against uh, discriminating against people. Uh, on the basis of of of, uh, of sex or race, but if you expect to get moral credit for suffering, or if you expect to get my stuff because you're suffering, you expect to get my uh, a positive vibe because you're suffering. 
forget it, her philosophy says. Uh, and that is probably the biggest threat that they have because, again, what does the right have to say about that? Well, we don't think you suffer quite as much as these other groups. We really think these other groups are more suffering. Or, you know, uh, you aren't discriminated as much as you think you're discriminated. Um, or you're all immoral for, I don't know, for, for, for rejecting the female, male, whatever. Right? So they, they argue the details. They argue, but they don't argue the fundamental basic moral premise that the whole thing is built on. I, I think you're touching on it right now, but but I think at this point it, it might be useful to perhaps uh, discuss what objectivism is and, and how that differs from collectivism. Sure. So, uh, you know, this is kind of objectivism on one foot. There are multiple volumes written on this, so uh, <laughs> excuse my... <laughs> Disclaimer <simple>. accepted. Disclaimer. <laughs> um, so objectivism is a philosophy that starts out by saying reality is what it is. It's not what you wish it to be, and it's not what other, some other consciousness wishes it to be. A is A, reality is what it is, and it's, it's, it's not dictated by our whims and our wishes and our consciousness. We have a means for knowing that reality. That means is, and this is kind of epistemology, so that was metaphysics, not epistemology, is we have a means for knowing that reality. That means our senses and our, our reason, our reason which includes our senses and our mind, is our means of knowing reality. Uh, we don't know reality through our emotions. We don't know reality through revelation. We don't know reality through some kind of mystical process, a platonic uh, you know, revelation from the world of forms. We know reality by uh, through our senses and and by integrating the information of that senses into into concepts. The only entity that actually thinks that uses reason is the individual. There's no collective consciousness. The, it, it, you can't eat for me. You can't think for me. It, it, it's bizarre how people think that um, you, they all recognize there's no such thing as a collective stomach. But they somehow think there's a collective consciousness. They somehow think there's group, uh, there's a value in, in group consciousness and, and in the collective in and of itself. So she is fundamentally in morality and individualist. The purpose of your life is your happiness. Neither sacrificing yourself to other people, that's a rejection of altruism as a moral ideal, or asking other people to sacrifice themselves for you. So no exploitation. You're supposed to deal with other people as traders in win-win relationships um, in, in, and respect their rights just as you expect them to respect your rights. And politically, the only political system that leaves you free to use your mind, to choose your values in pursuit of your happiness is a political system where the government doesn't interfere, it is a political system where the government does one thing and one thing only, which is protect your rights protect you from force, coercion, authority, the things that can interfere with your own judgment and your own actions. So she's a capitalist. She rejects socialism. She rejects fascism. She rejects any form of statism, any form of placing anything above the individual. The individual is sovereign. The role of the government is to protect the individual. That's it. So that's kind of a philosophy in on, on one foot. And But how does that separate from... What libertarianism, for example? So libertarianism is not a is not a philosophy. It might be a political philosophy, and even there, it's questionable, because libertarianism consciously says we don't have a position on epistemology, we don't have a position on metaphysics, and we don't have a position on ethics. You can do whatever you know. You know you can you can be a Christian, 
you can be a subjectivist, you can be a mistake, you can be um, a, a Mother Teresa sacrificer, you can be whatever, whatever you want to be. The only thing we're concerned about is politics. So at best, it's a political theory. And even then, what does libertarianism actually stand for? Does it stand for limited government, like some libertarians claim? You know, we, we want a government that's limited. And, and if it's limited, limited to what? Um, okay, protection of, uh, of individual rights. How do you define rights? They can't, uh, because rights is a moral concept and they've rejected morality. Uh, and then a big chunk of libertarians, and I'm sure you've met them, uh, a big percentage of libertarians are anarchists. And they claim there should be no government. So, and, and that's consistent with that kind of moral subjectivism. If you're subjectivist in morality and you don't want to take a position in epistemology and metaphysics, then anything goes. And if anything goes, there's no such thing as rights. Where, where do rights come from? And therefore, let's negotiate everything. Let's negotiate what property is. Let's negotiate everything. And let's put everything on the table, including force, including policing, including military, including all of that. And that that's anarchy. And Anarchy is exactly what it sounds like. It's anarchy. It's 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 a mess. It's a disaster. It's it's a horrible way of living. And so objectivism, Ayn Rand rejects it completely. Um, she called libertarians, at least in the nineties, hippies of the right. So so the kind of subjectivism, but applied to kind of right wing ideas. In in order to make it more more concrete for our listeners, perhaps we could apply some of these objectivist principles to, to, to issues they might know. So uh, what is the objectivist view on, on say, lockdowns and, and other pandemic restrictions? Something you guys know a lot about. Too uh, much. Yes. Particularly Too much. No, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you're innocent until proven guilty. The government ha- cannot lock you down if you're innocent. The government cannot touch you if you're innocent. Now, what does guilty mean, in a, innocent and guilty mean from the perspective of a pandemic? If, you're, if, you're, if you don't carry the virus, the government has no business with you, right? So if you test negative or if you have no symptoms, and so there's no reason to test, the government has no business with you. It can't tell you what to do, period. Can't lock you down. It can't shut down your business. Can't tell you not to go to work. It can't tell you anything. The only people the government can say something about are people who test positive for a disease that we have somehow objectively determined is a real threat to other people, uh, a a life or death threat, and is is very contagious. So whether COVID qualifies or not, I'm not going to get into that debate, but but maybe, right? I think it's a borderline. COVID was borderline. Um, But but you can imagine a, a, um, I don't know, uh, Ebola that's very contagious, right? Something where people really die and they die quickly and horribly. Um, if you test positive for something like that, yeah, the government has every right to, to, in a sense, isolate you. And that's its only job. But if I'm not tested positive, government has no business with me. Mm. Well, I've got, I've, got, I've got a couple of other ones on my list here. Um, uh, what about Black Lives Matter? Well, what about Black Lives Matter? I mean, uh, that's that's a it's a kind of a term that, that doesn't mean much um, to the extent that there's racism in the police. That is horrific. Right. So uh, a philosophy doesn't have an opinion about whether there's racism or not. A philosophy can only tell you if there's racism, what should you do and whether racism is good or bad. And, and objectivism and Ayn Rand hold that racism is evil. It's an evil ideology. But that 
individual people have every right, if you will, to be racist. You have every right to be evil as long as you don't physically hurt other people. But the government does not have that right. The government must treat everybody equally. So to the extent that the police, obviously is a government entity, it, to the extent that police are discriminating, it's the job of the government to fix that. Um, and whether that means more training, whether that means cameras, whether that, that's a technical question left to experts who know how to deal with these things. But it is unacceptable philosophically from an objective perspective to have a government that is discriminating based on anything but have you violated the law or haven't you violated the law? That's the only decision, if you will, a government needs to make. It's, it's, it's not there to, to, to decide what rules a particular store or a particular individual, what behavior engages in is good or bad other than is it violating somebody else's rights or isn't it? Is it violating, is it breaking the law, isn't it? But wouldn't uh, Ayn Rand also somewhat appreciate uh, how filthy rich the people behind Black Lives Matter have gotten? I mean, they've, they're, you know, they're, they're <laughs> capitalists, they're proud capitalists, they've done what they... No, because, I mean, this is, again, a mistake about Ayn Rand. I mean, Ayn Rand wasn't about, let's get rich. Anything you can do to get rich, that's good, right? That's not her attitude at all. Uh, indeed, in, in Atlas Shrugged and in The Fountainhead, she has rich people who are bad guys um, because of how they got rich. Um, and, it, and how they got rich, being a bad guy doesn't just mean because they stole it, or they, but because they're scumbags, they're bad people, and, and, and they manipulated the system or, or they manipulated people. Ayn Rand loves rich people to the extent that those rich people are productive people or actually engage in productive activity. What Ayn Rand admires is not the richness. What Ayn Rand admires is the productivity. It's the process of becoming rich. It's the values being created as you become rich. If you become rich by defrauding people, like I think Black Lives Matter to a large extent has, or if you become rich by emotionally manipulating people, certainly a way in which Black Lives Matter, became, some people behind it, um, then that is not valued. If you become rich because of the lottery, I'm, I'm not against you, but I don't admire you for it, right? That's just blah. But if you become rich because you apply your mind to solving a problem that affects a lot of people and you, 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 you've, you've made your life better, you've made the life of the people around you better by you know, solving this problem, by working hard at it, that's the kind of rich that we admire. We admire richness that comes from not hard work, productive work. Um, you know, using your mind to really solve problems and to, to add values uh, to, to, to the world. Well, arguably, uh, the, the leaders, the, the now disgraced leaders of, of Black Lives Matter are better regarded by many of, on the left than, say, Elon Musk as a productive. Yeah, because, again, the left is going to say, okay, so they're corrupt, so they're corrupt people, just like communism. There are a few corrupt people in Black Lives Matter, but the intention is good, right? And the intention is what matters. The idea is beautiful and so on. And arguably, the, 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 the stated intentions originally were, if you believed them, were good, right? We, we're fighting against police brutality, da 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 of course, that's not what Black Lives Matter ultimately stood for, and it's not what it, I think it stood for even in the beginning, but it's what they they projected it. Um, but people still admire Black Lives Matter, even though they're corrupt, because they admire the uh, the, the supposed ideals, equality, right? Equality is the great uh, is the great thing that people admire, and and 
you know, as you know, I've got, I, I wrote a book called Equal is Unfair. So I'm not a fan of equality. I'm not a fan of equality of outcome or equality of opportunity. I'm a fan of equality before the law, equality of rights, equality of liberties, equality of freedom. Um, and, and, but they, they're not. They want equality of outcome. And, and, and that, again, is the big difference. Well, we've given BLM enough free publicity. So let's move on to uh, something a little more important, the Fountainhead. So I know we're making you work really hard for it today, Your Honor, you do it, but <laughs> would you, would you, we, will, we will engage with you more, but we need you to, to just briefly introduce the Fountainhead to people in the audience who might, who might not know about it. So Fountainhead was uh, published in 1945. It is a story of an architect, uh, an architect who is kind of revolutionary in terms of his design. He's pushing the envelope. It's very, very loosely based on, if you will, the life of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, a uh, famous American architect, um, whose uh, revolutionary uh, designs were initially rejected and and was, and I'm not going to give the story away, but, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just say that it's it's about the struggles of this architect to to uh, to be successful, uh, to be acknowledged as successful, uh, and also the the uh, interpersonal relationships he has with the woman he loves and and with the friends that he has and and other people who are in architecture at the same time, and uh, all the characters in the book are really designed to kind of bring up different aspects of this philosophical idea of individualism of of the value of the individual, of what it means to be independent, of what it means to be an independent thinker, and and the cost you pay when you're not an independent thinker. So it's it's a fascinating novel. It, it really has Howard Rourke, who's the architect, is this projection, Ayn Rand's projection of kind of an ideal man. Uh, the female character, the lead female character in The Fountainhead is a difficult one. A lot of people struggle with understanding Dominique. She's not an easy woman. Um, but it again, it makes it, uh, I think, interesting and fascinating and kind of a, a cool read. Absolutely. Uh, well, I feel like this book, for whatever reason, might be, and I got this rereading it uh, recently, I think it might be totally beyond the pale in 2022. I, I feel like, I mean, it's it's obviously been controversial since day one, obviously. Uh, but in the age of social justice and censorship and wokeness, I can't think of a bigger affront to the prevailing taste consensus. What's what's your read on on the reputation of the book currently? Absolutely. Well, I don't know. I mean, I still get kids who are blown away by it, right? So it still is having this unbelievable positive effect, and I'm not seeing like what I'd expect. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you if you if you think about popular culture and you think about the Fountainhead. They are at at odds. Clearly, Mar like Marvel <laughs> Studios is not making the Fountainhead. No, no. But on the other hand, there is talk about making the Fountainhead, right? So they should. Uh, what's his name? Snyder, the guy who did uh, the Batman movies, oh, is, wow. is is very interested in making the Fountainhead. He just actually withdrew the project because of some of these concerns. So uh, he he was writing scripts. He was going to turn it into a mini series because it couldn't really fit into one movie. I mean, he was really into it. And then he withdrew it because of concerns about, I think, this, about the, the concerns. And, and why? Because one of the themes of the novel uh, is masculinity and femininity. 
there's just no question about it. I mean, it makes people uncomfortable to think about What's it. What's that? I've no, I don't know what these words are. Anymore. Yeah, I know. <laughs> is there such a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, the hero is a man's man and, and, and reflects kind of Rand's view of what masculinity is all about. And, and, uh, and, and there is definitely, uh, you know, femininity in Rand's view. And Rand's view of femininity and masculinity is very controversial and um, very non-politically correct. And in spite of the fact, I mean, this is the thing about Ayn Rand, right? She has this view of, of femininity and masculinity is not very politically correct. And yet, in 1957, she publishes a novel, Atlas Shrugged, where the heroine, the female heroine, is not a housewife. Um, she's a railroad executive who runs the railroad. She's the only frigging, you know, competent railroad executive in the entire world, right? And it's a woman, and she runs the railroad. And yet she's incredibly feminine at the same time, right? She can be this amazing boss, incredibly rational, incredibly business oriented, and yet incredibly feminine all at the same time and be described as feminine and be described by Ayn Rand as, as, as this, you know, as sexual at the same time as being this amazing. And that doesn't compute for these people, right? It, 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 they can't hold it, right? Uh, all at the same time. And as you said, femininity and masculinity are not concepts you could talk about. I mean, what degree of, fem you know, the, the, you can't even say there's a male and a female, right? There's, what, 98 different genders or whatever. I mean, Rand rejects that completely. And 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 uh, to, for her, there's definitely a man and a woman, and there's definitely femininity, and there's definitely masculinity. And you can have different degrees of each one, right? I mean, uh, you can be a man and, and have feminine characteristics and you can be a woman and have masculine characteristics, but in your essential, are you masculine? Are you feminine? Is, is how Rand and, and I think the books deal with that. And that's something that modern culture struggles with. And yet I haven't really seen the backlash. I, I mean, maybe it's out there. Maybe I just have missed it, but I haven't seen that backlash. Maybe because the books are so powerful. People forget about the, the kind of ridiculous, BS stuff that they're learning in English class. If if they were on on a curriculum somewhere, I'm I'm sure there'd be backlash though. So they are on a curriculum. This is the fascinating thing, right? So one of the things we do at the Ironman Institute, we've done this for uh, twenty years now, is that we offer English teachers in the United States uh, free copies of the book. We'll literally send them a box of books. Today we don't send them a box. We send them digital copies of the books for free if they'll promise to teach the books. And uh, we ship, I don't know, three, 400,000 copies of the books every year. Wow. And that includes the Fountainhead. Now, most of them teach Anthem, which I think is less objectionable, and it's shorter. But many of them teach the Fountainhead, and, men, and, and even some teach Atlas. And we run an essay contest every year, right? So we run the largest essay contest, high school essay contest in the world, it turns out. Um, some years we get up to 20,000 essays. And, you know, so we, we have these kids writing essays on the Fountainhead. And, you know, not all of them are good. And, and, <laughs> and, and some of them are great. I, I mean, are really, really good. And it's surprising how open students are to these books and how willing they are to consider it. And, you know, it gives you hope that, that the world is not as crazy and as nutty and as silly uh, in many respects, as maybe the headlines sometimes make the, us the, think. The, this can't be California or New York, surely. It's everywhere. It's it truly is amazing. It's everywhere. There are good teach. There are teachers everywhere, whose main. It's not that they agree with Ayn Rand. 
but whose main motivation is their students. There's still teachers like this, right? And what happens when a student reads an Ayn Rand book is they want to talk about it. It, it. it gets them going. It gets them thinking, right? And they might hate it. They might love it. They might, but they want to talk about it. And what a good teacher loves is a piece of work that does that to their students, gets them thinking. And they are still, shockingly, thousands of teachers in America, but not just in America, all over the world, because we get essays from Korea, from China, from Europe, anywhere where they, where they uh, teach in English, where there's an English teaching school, we'll get essays from. Um, there's still thousands of teachers who still care about teaching students. This is why I don't think the world is going to end tomorrow in spite of the woke culture. It's not going to end tomorrow in spite of uh, the racist left or the racist right or the fascist left or the fascist right. Uh, I'm still, you know, ultimately optimistic because I think most people, most people don't buy the BS. I, you know, again, the BS makes great headlines. It great makes great stories. It makes great content for podcasts like ours, like mine and yours and stuff like that. We love to talk about this stuff because it's what people it come to us to hear about. But the reality is that 90 plus percent of life doesn't happen in this space. Most people are out there working hard, making a living, trying to get a good education for their kids. They're not woke. They're, they're not racist. They're not crazy. They're not. They just trying to get by and trying to good, live a good life. And as long as most people are like that, um, I think there's still hope. Oh, you didn't expect me to be positive and optimistic. <laughs> that was wonderful. <laughs> you, you you floored me there. I thought <laughs> that was very it was quite moving. I'm delighted yes. to hear about that. That 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 you know you put a number on it that that many people are reading this book because I've been reading it in isolation, too frightened to tell anyone apart from you know uh, a few people. And and um, yeah, that's just that's very moving to hear that 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 people are reading it. It's out there. It's growing. Uh, interest in Ayn Rand's ideas is always growing. It hasn't shrunk. Uh, you know, I've been involved in this for 30, 40 years, and it's always there's more. Every year there's more. It was still small, and it's international, and it's it's growing in places you wouldn't expect, um, and uh, or maybe you would expect, but it's 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 global. I mean, she, her books, Fountainhead, a book like Fountainhead, basically translated in, into every language except the only two major languages it's not in are Arabic and Farsi. But in every other language, from a variety of different Indian languages, it's in China. It sells in China. It sells quite well in China. So does Atlas Shrugged. So does Capitalism, Not Known Ideal, Ayn Rand's book. Every book of Ayn Rand's is in China, in Chinese selling. It's in Korean. It's in Vietnamese. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's in, this is shocking, right? But it's in French. Um, uh, you know, every European language has a translation. It's like it's in Russian, but it's also in Ukrainian. And and in Ukraine, just to, just because it's in the news, Atlas Shrugged was the best-selling book in Ukraine in 2015. Wow. Like number one on the bestseller list because it came out in Ukrainian that year in three volumes. And every time the new volume came out, that volume became the number one best-selling book in Ukraine. So the ideas are out there. They resonate. They, they, uh, they inspire people. And... Uh, that's not going to go away, and that's only going to grow over time. Well, I'm I'm really interested in 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 Rand's concept and 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 uh, idea of of the ideal man that we see in the Fountainhead. What qualities do you think make up this vision of man? Well, the primary quality, and this is her primary virtue in her, because she has a worked out moral system, and the primary virtue in her moral system is rationality, is to be rational. 
is to act based on facts, based on evidence, um, and, and, and based on a real evaluation, long-term evaluation of, of, of what is truly in your self-interest, taking into account all the facts and not letting you be driven by emotion, not letting you be driven by other people, not letting you be, uh, you know, let other people do the thinking for you. So, so rationality, which means super honest, right? Because what does rationality require? It requires super honesty because you have to know what the facts are. You have to know what reality is. You can't fake it. You, you can't allow falsity into your into your consciousness, right? You have to go only by the facts, and therefore you have to be super honest primarily with yourself, but as a consequence with everybody else as well. Um, independence, again, another feature of rationality. Uh, you've got to do your own thinking. You've got to figure it out by yourself. I mean, one of the things that struck me, we talked about COVID earlier. One of the shocking things about COVID is how much of people's thinking about COVID they let other people do for them, right? Now, it's somewhat understandable that on the medical side, you want to look for experts and you want to get some advice for experts. But nobody questioned. And, and this is on both sides, right? On the side that went, oh, vaccines are going to kill us all, or on the side that went, COVID is going to kill us all. Both sides were mindless. They, they basically found an expert and followed everything they did and didn't investigate, didn't research, didn't look for facts. Um, and, and granted, it wasn't easy necessarily, but when something like this is about, it's kind of life or death, how you, you know, it's positioned that way. You got to do your own thinking. Um, so independent thinking, having integrity, producing, right? Produ taking care of yourself, using your mind to, to, to feed yourself, to feed your family, to, to produce, to create values in the world. Um, so, so, and then treating other people with justice. I mean, this is one that I think is not respected enough. A, a, an ideal man treats other people the way they deserve to be treated. Now, people don't like that, right? Because <laughs> you mean an ideal man judges people? Yes, you judge people. Some people are good, some people are bad. You stay away from bad people. You don't trade with bad people. You don't provide values to bad people. But you, you're, you're super friendly and respectful and, 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 and uh, you know, trade and engage with good people and you make those judgments and you make those judgments every day about pretty much everybody you deal you deal with are they basically good for me are they bad for me because your life depends on it so uh, justice is a big deal for an ideal man and finally an ideal man has a lot of self-esteem they they're, 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 they they have pride they seek their own kind of uh trying to be as good of a human being as they can they can be i mean i like to say you know, you, you have one shot at life. Uh, you have a very finite period at to do it. Um, you never get it. Any minute that you spend in life, you never get it back. You've only got this time on earth. Make the most of it. Live the best life that you can be. Live fully. And I think that's what an ideal man kind of does. They live fully based on their mind, based on reason. Well, I'm in awe of Howard Rourke's stoicism and his unwavering approach to life and work. But it's a life of suffering in some ways. You know, he suffers rejection, uh, loss, and, and toils away with 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 zero encouragement or support. Uh, is this the fate of anyone with a vision? I think it's a, it's often a fate of people with a vision in the culture we live in. Part of the goal of changing the culture is to make that different. But think about the inner peace that Howard Rourke has, right? I mean, from the outside, it seems like he's suffering. But here he is in the quarry doing the work that he shouldn't be doing because he's way better than that, right? And he's accepted it, and he's he's accepted it, 
as a temporary thing. He knows he's not going to destined to stay here. It, you don't get a sense of real suffering. Um, he is lonely, but throughout the novel, he finds people who share his spirit and who he can support and, and ultimately who can help support him. So he finds his kind of people. And part of the part of this idea in life is to find your kind of people, to find the kind of people that you can have th this great relationship with and uh, not compromise on that because, uh, again, this is the issue of justice. But I, I don't view him as stoic he, 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 because he's not detached from his emotions. He's, he's a very emotional guy. Um, he lives his life based on his principles. And ultimately, he is successful. And Ayn Rand's message here is if you stick with these ideas because they are in a sense, derived from what is successful in life, you will be successful. You will achieve great things. And ultimately, what, do you, what does he achieve in the end? Without giving the plot away, he achieves everything in the end, right? And, and he, he, he's super happy in the end. But, but to achieve that is hard work. That's, that's a message throughout Ayn Rand's novels. Nothing comes easy in the sense that it, it just happens to you. You know, there's only one character in all of her novels where things really do come easy to him. And that's Francisco in, in Atlas Shrugged, if you've read Atlas Shrugged. Um, but if you think about Reardon, who works to create Reardon metal, this new metal and his success, think about Dagny. They, they have to work really, really hard to achieve what they're going to achieve. They, ha they have to put in the sweat. Uh, and, and, but at every step, if they step back for a second and they think about their life, they're always going to be happy, right? They're always going to be satisfied. They're always going to be, yes, I'm doing the right thing. And, and there's nothing, that's what happiness is about. Happiness is not about, I'm going to party all day, night, all day and all night, right? That's not happiness. Happiness is about this knowledge that you're doing the right thing, that you're moving your life forward, that you're, you're producing something of value, that your life means something to you, that values are being achieved and being created uh, and and if you do that, I think the inner sense, I don't view it as stoicism. I view it as just it's an inner calmness and inner consistency and inner sense of peace and happiness at the end. Well, it occurred to me, uh, Yaron, re reading it again recently, that, you know, in a sense, Howard Rourke doesn't really change. He he is as driven and principled at the start as he was in the end. I never really understood that uh, when I read it first time. Therefore, arguably, the story is actually more concerned with the other people in Howard's life. And you, this is obviously uh, news to me. Now, uh, they all seem to have changed coming into contact with him in some way, shape or form. And that is the mark of who the book's about, change, right? So perhaps we could just talk about a couple of these characters because I think that, you know, they are probably the reason some people don't want to read it although they don't know it so perhaps you know tell us about peter keating so peter keating is you get a sense of peter keating is kind of a he's kind of a good guy he, 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 but he 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 at a very young age has decided he's just going to get along he's he's going to do what other people want him to do he 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 chooses his profession based on what will make his mother happy and then once in the profession he doesn't look for anything new or anything exciting or to push the envelope in any kind of way. He's just going to do what sells, what's going to get. So he gets rich, he gets famous, he gets successful way ahead of Howard Rourke, right? He's a partner in this major firm and he's, he's all, but he's never happy because the happiness doesn't come from the money. Going back to what we talked about originally, it's not, it doesn't come from the money. It comes from how you produce the money. He's never achieved anything. He's never really created anything of his own. 
it's always been other people, right? And so he's unhappy. He 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 never he doesn't get the woman he really loves. He marries a woman for the status rather than for love. Um, and he is what the society would perceive as, as successful, but he's unhappy, miserable, uh, goes nowhere in his life. Uh, and in the end, he has this realization that what he really wanted to be was a painter, not a architect. And by then, and, and he knows that, and it's kind of, and, and it's a sad ending for him because in a sense that he comes to realization, oh, this is what I should have done. This is what I want to be. But as Howard Rourke tells him, when he sees a painting of his, it's too late. Maybe if you'd started on this when you were 16, 18, 20, you could have made something. But at this age, it's too late. You've, you've, you've lost it. You, you, and you've given up too much of your own independence and your own mind. You're now a nothing. And, and that's the cost. Tragic figure. Yes. Well, I think he represents a lot of people who see online today as well. Influencers and content creators and people who want to please the algorithm and things like that. I think he represents most people. I mean, that's how scary it is because it's not just you see online. It's most people who live out there who do what their mother wants them to do, who live their life not because they found a passion and pursue it, but because they do what's acceptable by society or acceptable by their friends or, or they, they, they just – or they, they think, their they political thoughts, it's because uh, my friends support Trump, so I support Trump. My friends support Biden, so I support Biden, whatever. You know, in every aspect of their life, they follow the hood. This is the tribalism that we're seeing. So, yes, uh, he represents, I think, unfortunately, a, a big chunk of humanity today. And more alarmingly, there's another character called Ellsworth Tui. Yes, Ellsworth Tui doesn't really change, right? He's another one of these characters that doesn't change. Right, Ellsworth Tui is evil at the beginning of the book and is evil at the end of the book. <laughs> Nothing much That's changed. That's true, but yeah. Howard does get under his skin, though. He does. <laughs> he gets under his skin primarily by the fact that Howard Rock ignores him, right? And that the thing that evil people hate the most is being ignored, because evil people primarily do what they do in order to attain power over other people, and the way they attain power over other people is by by having those other people um, have to relate to them constantly, right? Have to have to engage with them constantly. So, um, uh, you know, uh, Ellsworth Tui is the ultimate evil. What makes him unique is that he is the only evil person I know who completely understands his own evil. I think most evil people don't recognize their own evil and don't understand it. They rationalize it away. They pretend that it doesn't exist. They evade it. They create stories about it so that they don't think of themselves as evil. I think human beings cannot hold, I'm evil. To hell with it. Fine, I'm going to be evil. Ellsworth Tui does, and he explains it. And I think his explanation for his evil is unbelievably insightful. It's some of the most important work that Ayn Rand did in the fountainhead is, is showing what evil constitutes and what evil is about and what evil is trying to attain. And I think she captures almost all evil people in this character of Ellsworth Tui. So uh, it's, 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 it's incredibly illuminating just to read those passages where he's explaining what he's doing and why he's doing it. Yes, well, I, I just couldn't, couldn't help thinking about some of the people who are doing power grabs, some of these race hustlers we, we see now yes. and some political figures as well. Yeah. No question.
No question. Mm. Yes, well, well, turning our focus uh, back to objectivism for a moment here, some of the criticisms criticisms that I've heard of uh, objectivism is that it's selfish, a sort of in-it-for-yourself mentality. Uh, now, if your own happiness is the main objective of this philosophy, then what, what's stopping you from stealing, raping, and pillaging? Uh, what's your counter to that claim? Well, that it doesn't make you happy. <laughs> it doesn't make you happy in a number of different dimensions. Just like I, I mentioned earlier, happiness does not come from making money, or, or maybe it comes from making money, but it not comes from attaining money. It doesn't come from getting money. It doesn't come from getting stuff. Um, happiness comes from pursuing life in a particular way, following particular virtues. And it, when it comes to money, happiness comes from producing, from creating value, from applying your mind to actual problems and solving them. That's what happiness comes from. So, I mean, we all know people who lie for a living, right? There's only one profession where you can lie for a living. It's politics, right? <laughs> it's the only profession in the world. Like, have you ever met a happy politician? No. I mean, all the politicians I've met are miserable, horrible people. They really are. They're, they're, you, just look at Bill Clinton and tell me he's had a happy moment in his life. You know, he hasn't. I, I don't think even when he has an orgasm, he's satisfied. He's, the, the guy's constantly eating himself <laughs> out. Because he's such a horrible, you know, uh, nasty, you know, human being, right? And I think that's true of all politicians. I've I've never met or seen on TV somebody who I could say, "Huh, that guy seems pretty satisfied and happy and content." And and um, so I, I I you know we if you lie in business, how long are you gonna survive in business? Not long. Again, in a free market, if if you're dealing with government officials, then maybe you survive. But again, probably not happily. Um, Thieves get caught, they go to jail, but it's more than that. Uh, if you live a life of ch cheating, lying, and stealing, you're basically psychologically acknowledging that cheating, lying, and stealing are okay. They're ways of living life. And therefore, you're sanctioning other people to cheat, lie, and steal from you. There's nothing wrong with that, right? You're basically saying that's fine. And obviously, that can't be right. You can't live a good life. If everybody around you could be lying, stealing, and cheating at any point in time, and you constantly have to be. So uh, there's nothing about lying, stealing, or cheating that's good for you. So yes, Ayn Rand's philosophy is about being, quote, selfish. But she means by selfish is rationally pursuing a particular set of values that are consistent with a long, rational, successful, happy life. Um, and that does not include lying, cheating, stealing, or backstabbing, just being nasty, and all of the rest of it. Well, just a couple of small questions uh, you're on. So, well, this isn't a small question, but it's certainly one of our one of our uh, final ones. What would the world look like if there were more people with integ the integrity of Howard Rourke? What, what could we accomplish? You know, I, I'd have to be a science fiction writer to answer that question, right? Because it's hard to imagine. Um, it, we are so wealthy today because of the last 300 years we've been relatively free and uh, 250 years and uh 250 years ago they could have never imagined us doing this from australia to puerto rico where i live and 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 engage in this conversation and um and I, i'm not sure why you don't have heating but i have air conditioning here <laughs> um and uh but it's it's uh, it's unimaginable how to people 250 years ago how rich we are today I think it's unimaginable to us how rich we could be if people, A, were, uh, had the integrity of a hard work. Uh, 
every businessman who's been successful out there has an element of Howard Rourke in him. Maybe not fully, but an element of it. Um, I don't think you can be successful in business without having some of what Howard Rourke, uh, some of his virtues. Uh, but imagine that on steroids and then imagine many more of those people out there, artists, uh, medical professionals, uh, uh, and, and business people who have this kind of integrity and, and this kind of independence and this kind of genius. Yeah, the world would be so much richer, so much more interesting, so much more fun, so much more beautiful, right? Uh, one of the things that we're very, very poor in today you know, we're rich materially. We're very poor aesthetically. Um, if you travel, uh, most uh, most of, uh, uh, I complain about this all the time, suburban America is ugly or at best just boring. It's gray, it's nothing. Imagine if Americans had the kind of aesthetic, uh, you know, appreciation that Howard Rourke's among us would provide, right? Um, the beauty that we would surround ourselves with, uh, in architecture, in painting, in sculpture, in music. In, in, I mean, listen to the music today. It's mostly ugly, right? It, it, or, or it's superficially pretty, but it's not beautiful. It's not deeply beautiful. Uh, there's no popular music today that's beautifully, you know, deeply beautiful. Uh, it, it, you know, we're superficial culture. We're, we're superficial world. How to work. If we had more how to works, we wouldn't have that. We'd have... We'd have real values, real beauty. Well, I I don't think we can we can top that at all. Uh, so, first, firstly, uh, where can people find you online, Yaron? So uh, I've got a YouTube channel. So just Yaron Brook uh, on YouTube. Just Google Yaron Brook. You'll find more than you want. Probably there's a lot of uh, stuff out there. And then um, on Ayn Rand, uh, the Ayn Rand, we Ayn Rand Institute website, um, AynRand.org, A Y N R A N D dot O R G. There's a, there's a ton of content there. And then, of course, the best thing people can do is just go pick up the Fountainhead. Pick up Atlas Shrugged. Go, go read for yourself. Yes, well, we highly recommend uh, people read some Ayn Rand. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, just our final question, we'd love to know what you're reading right now. God, what am I reading right now? Come on, be honest. <laughs> I, I'm probably reading four different books, right? So that, that you know, because I've got some on audio because I've, I've gotten into listening to books. So I'm reading... I just started something. I'm reading a book on the Enlightenment on audio, the Enlightenment, the pursuit of happiness. Because I like to on audio, I like to do um, nonfiction, and I'm particularly interested in the Enlightenment period because I think it's you can't understand the world today without understanding the Enlightenment, kind of where we came from. So I'm reading that. I just finished David Deutsch's uh, Beginning of Infinity, um, and then uh, it, on, in a Kindle, I'm reading a fiction book that is kind of a fictionalized version of Spinoza's life. So kind of a seventh century, but it, it's got a parallel story going on in like Nazi Germany. So it's kind of an interesting, it's kind of an interesting kind of overlay. So Spinoza's problem, the Spinoza problem, I think is the name of the book. Um, and then there's something else. But... No, that's that's uh, more than enough. <laughs> yeah, probably more than what people want. So, well, yeah. I just wanted to thank you so much for making time for us, Yaron. And um, this was all just a ploy to set up this podcast so we could talk to you about the Fountainhead. And I wanted to tell you, if no one else has, that you yourself are a Rockian figure. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That is, <laughs> that is quite a compliment and I appreciate it. Thank you. Sorry. Hopefully we can uh, we can have the kind of impact on the world that I described earlier. And thank you. I, I really enjoyed this. Appreciate it.